I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And Marcel, it is a hot one, like seven inches from the midday sun. Is this a cool reference? Good. So I want to talk about tips for keeping cool in the sorting chat. That is a beautiful idea, Hannah. I love tips. So how are you doing it? How are you surviving? I'm just not wearing any clothes. That's my top tip. Oh, I wondered if that's why we had such a close-up of your face and none of like your shoulders or your upper torso. You're just naked. You always have this much of a close-up of my face. It's like a weird function of the webcam. I got like a really cheap, bad web- webcam and uh, and it will only <laughs> show my face at this intense proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I'm only wearing a sports bra and, and Lululemon yoga shorts. But Ooh. in my defense, mm-hmm. I've had them for 20 years. Aww. They're vintage. Love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I gotta say that is my like, my hot tip for keeping cool, especially when you are like, maybe a person who for whatever reason has some anxiety about showing your body to the world mm-hmm. like a fat person or a trans person or a mm-hmm. you know in whatever way person whose body is going to be uh, subject to the gaze when you <laughs> exit into the street subject to the gaze not with a the z gaze. not yeah. not with a y the bad one, not the good one. Anyway, my hot tip is, fuck it, wear fewer clothes. Mm-hmm, <laughs> that's, my, mm-hmm. that's my really hot tip. That's Because it, it feels better it does. to not have a lot of clothes on you. Yeah. And then everybody can see your sick tats. <laughs> cool. Marcel, what's your, cool. what's your tip? Well, I just made a purchase. 
that's the Marcel Cosman story. <laughs> I just I just made a purchase. I am nothing if not always trying to improve my life by buying a new thing. Very millennial of me. Uh, I bought a dog pool. <laughs> I bought a pool for dogs. <laughs> Sorry, what's the difference between a dog pool and a kitty pool, which is for kids, not cats, despite the misleading name? I'm not entirely sure because most of the reviews for this dog pool were from people who are like, my kids love it. So this is not an inflatable pool. It's like cork or cardboard or whatever coated in like it's foldable is coated in like PVC plastic or something. Maybe it's like not human grade plastic. I don't know. (laughs) But um, listen, we're not. Everybody's like, I love putting my children in here. (laughs) We're not drinking the water out of it. We're just going to sit in it. Oh, your toddler's drinking the water out of it. (laughs) And and I think because it's designed for dogs, it's like a thicker, because dogs have claws, right? For all their scrabbling. Yeah, yeah. So here's my hot tip, okay? Mm, If you're going to buy the dog pool, (laughs) just know that you're going to think that the large is too big. And so you're going to try to get the medium. But unless unless you only have a balcony... Please get either the large or the extra large. If they have a double extra large, you should get that one because it's a lot smaller than I thought it would be. (laughs) Did you get the medium? I got the large because they were out of stock of the medium. And I was like, can you fit your human body into the large? Yes, if I sit cross-legged. Okay. I'm considering getting a dog pool from my balcony, (laughs) but this is not. This is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What can I say? You're an influencer. You know what? <laughs> My dream is coming true. <laughs> Exfoliating gloves and dog pools. Hot. Critical adoption studies is a new field for us, so we are excited to be joined by a brilliant guest. But first, let's go over some earlier conversations that have laid a foundation for this episode in revision. Since we're talking about kinship and family structures, let's start with our episode on motherhood. Our special guest, Aaron Wunker, joined us to talk about how the representations of women and mothers are conflated with such regularity that we really need to intentionally prize them apart in order to examine the respective and shared essentialisms of those tropes. In that episode, Aaron reminded us that representations of motherhood in literature are deeply shaped by race and class. So where motherhood might be a conservative or a restrictive trope for middle-class white women, for Black writers, Indigenous writers, and writers of color, representations of motherhood can be radical, expansive, and liberatory. So that episode, of course, built on a bunch of earlier conversations about the importance of intersectional analysis. Our episodes on class, feminist literary theory, queer theory, and critical race theory, for example, all drew attention to white supremacy's insistence on centering white heteronormativity as the default and norm from which all other subjectivities deviate. Mm. Our episode on historical memory illustrated this beautifully as our guest, brilliant guest, Shira Lurie, explained that the people with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo 
are often the very people with the political, social, and financial capital to shape historical meaning because they build all the statues and name all of the schools. Mm -hmm. And so they shape historical memory into simplified narratives that shockingly justify those positions of power. Naturally, this has us thinking about our episode on the nation-state, where we looked at Benedict Anderson's oft-quoted, rarely-read thesis on the imagined community. In contrast to nationalities that form around shared culture and vernacular, we looked at British imperialism as an example of an increasingly obsolete dynasty mimicking the characteristics of popular nationalism in order to shore up its waning legitimacy. <laughs> In other words, British imperialism placates the British subject, saying, it's okay that the English lords are naturally superior to you because you are naturally superior to these people over here. Go and rule over them. And as we know, imperialism has devastating genocidal consequences. This show's a bummer. No, it's a fun one. <laughs> We have also unpacked numerous, let's say, toxins spread via imperialism in our episodes about eugenics, the prison industrial complex, queer theory, disability and mad studies, animal studies, centaurs, and house elves. Wow. To name a few. We've looked at how Western ideologies have reshaped kinship networks to make reproductive heterosexuality compulsory. We've talked about how Western medical models of illness and disability pathologize bodies rather than centering care. And in our most recent episode on anti-fatness, our guest Aubrey Gordon talked about state interventions into families where the well-being of children is determined by their body mass index, a metric never intended for children, and widely seen as unscientific, inaccurate, and racist. I gotta be honest with you, Hannah. I think writing these revision segments is really starting to radicalize me. Good. Let's keep that unlearning going and meet our guest. Summer break may be on the horizon, but our quills are sharp and our parchment is fresh. We're ready for transfiguration class. We have another thrilling guest today. Nia, pronouns they, them, is a Chinese-American adoptee, artist, and perpetual student. They received a master's degree in performance studies from Texas A&M University and a bachelor's degree in literature and theater from New York University Abu Dhabi. They currently attend CUNY School of Law and intend to practice some kind of public interest family law. Welcome, Nia. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for pitching this topic to us. We're really excited to talk about critical adoption studies with you. But, you know, in our, our, our general way of starting a conversation with a new guest is just to ask, what is your relationship to the Harry Potter series? Well, when it first came out, I was pretty little and I was very scared of movies. And so I didn't actually read them until I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13 when the fifth book was coming out. And then I got mm -hmm. like very into, I don't know, muggle cast and <laughs> fan fiction just sort of around the end of high school. And then I guess since then, you know, with J.K. Rowling becoming a turf and all of that, <laughs> things have gotten a little dismal, but 
<laughs> it is an important part of my, uh, uh, I don't know, literary past. What a shared origin story for so many of us. <laughs> Loved it. It was really important. Uh, completely devastated. So uh, yeah, that's just <laughs> that's just where I'm at. Well, Nia, you are here as our expert. Could you tell us what critical adoption studies as a field is? Where does it come from? Et cetera. Sure. So I would describe critical adoption studies as a field of scholarship that explores how power operates um, through adoption as like a legal, political, and economic institution that severs and creates familial bonds. It's also interested in narratives of adoption and how those narratives um, construct understandings of kinship, motherhood, reproduction, identity, race, and nation. Okay. So it's called critical adoption studies. What is it critical of? Well, so the field is a reaction to adoption studies, mm -hmm. which preceded it. And the okay. adoption studies was really examining adoption from a psychology and social work um, perspective. Okay. Okay. They were really interested in questions of nature versus nurture, and also interested in understanding the psychological and emotional impacts of adoption on adoptees, adoptive parents, birth or, or first parents. And yeah. there was a kind of like medical intervention element of it, of like you are having behavioral or psychological issues because of your experience of adoption. How can we fix that? Hmm. I got to say, hearing you say like, oh, it's this field that looked at like nature versus nurture just gave me a sort of like a, a racist shiver. Mm. Like just that framing immediately made me be like, oh, no. Yeah, there is definitely aspects of that where in some ways adoption is kind of like prescribed as a social remedy for children who were of color, yeah. poor, and mm -hmm. like would yeah. have had better lives, quote unquote, with white adopted parents. We touched on this a little bit in our discussion of sentimentality, but this concept of impressibility, which is like a 19th century pseudoscientific concept, was that like white people are more impressible, but people of color are more impressible when children. Mm -hmm. And that was used as a justification for sort of like forced adoption out because um, the idea is that you can like you know, it's, I mean, it's the idea of nurture versus nature that you can like mm -hmm. reshape children, which is sinister. Let's just leave. Mm -hmm. what, I'm just going to say sinister because I feel like probably you have a bunch more very smart things to say about it. So what in particular did those early critical adoption studies scholars critique? Yeah. So it might be helpful here to talk a little bit about like the history of adoption and how critical adoption studies sort of emerged from that. So Critical adoption studies really emerged in response to this rise in transnational adoption in the 1990s and to sort of developments in approaches to adoptive parenting in the 1970s. And so just so everybody's on the same page, what transnational adoption refers to is when children who are born in one country, which is referred to as the sending country, are adopted by parents who live in a different country, which is referred to as the receiving country. And I just want to Preface by saying it's important to recognize that like Asian, African, and Indigenous children were removed from their birth families through European, U.S., and Canadian settler colonialism a lot through history. This isn't a new phenomenon. But the practice that people often mean when they're referring to transnational adoption uh, sort of begins in the aftermath of World War II and the Korean War in the 1950s. What happens in the wake of World War II to make this sort of new phenomenon emerge? Basically, soldiers who were in World War II or in the Korean War went abroad, 
had children and some of those children were orphaned. And so there was a sense of responsibility to bring those children back to the U.S. There was a small but significant population of Black German children who were adopted by African-American communities in the U.S. And that was notable because the Black German children were actually expelled from Germany because of their race. And then in the Korean War, there were a lot of mixed-race Korean children who were adopted to the U.S., and that actually sort of opened the doors for Korean children who were not mixed to also be adopted to the U.S. and to Europe. Okay, so that's the, the 1950s. Fast forward a little bit into the 1970s. What is the shift that we see there? Yes, yeah, so, and I'm also sort of primarily talking about the U.S. because unfortunately, like, like many disciplines, critical adoption studies has sort of centered U.S. politics and just trying to move away from that. But basically, before the mid-1970s, there was a what is known as an as-if approach to adoptive families, where the idea was trying to totally assimilate the adoptive child into the family, into the culture and like nation of that family, and to very deliberately erase the child's past and the child's birth or first family. So, but then the shift then after this point is to try and allow for some exploration of that birth culture and to think about more hybrid identities. Okay, so we shift from this idea of like, you have to pretend that like, you have no birth parents, you came from no culture, you, you're like, only belong in this family that you were adopted into. And then there's a shift in which it's like, oh, that's that's a wild thing <laughs> to ask of a child. Yeah. And it even, I would say, becomes sort of normalized that that adoptive children are supposed to be curious about their birth parents and maybe even search for their birth parents. Okay. Does that become its own kind of pressure or expectation? Like when that narrative shifts or that that sort of best practice shifts? Like, is there still the sense that like, okay, well, here's the right way to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think for every adoptee, their relationship to birth parents and birth culture is is different. I think that you can kind of spin this search for the birth parents in two different ways. Mm -hmm. On one hand, there is a sense of like maybe having relationships that are outside the white nuclear family and sort of embracing identity that probably is drawing on ideas of multiculturalism and identity politics that are also like coming to mainstream popularity in the 1970s. But on the other hand, there's also a kind of conservative turn here to thinking about family as being about blood or about genetics and sort of believing that finding your genetic parent will tell you something about you because there's something essential about that biological connection. That's so interesting, that double move of like, on the one hand, destabilizing the sort of like, close unit of the white post-war American family. But on the other hand, the like thing that disrupts it is a kind of like biological essentialism that is like, yeah, but like family is about whose genes you share. Mm -hmm. So we've done the 50s, we've done the 70s. How about the 90s? Okay, so in the 1990s, transnational adoption really accelerated. For instance, immigrant orphan visas that were issued by the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Services nearly tripled from 1991 when they issued about wow. 7,000 to 2001 when they issued about 19,000. Wow. 
Within this decade, 139,000 children were internationally adopted to the U.S., uh, with Mm. more than 50,000 of them born in China or in Russia. Because the 90s is the decade of my childhood that I remember with, you know, the greatest clarity, I feel like I also remember that period being a period where there were a lot of powerful celebrity women adopting children from all of these other places to show how worldly and good they are. This is me trying to remember, like, what was the what was the cultural narrative? I don't remember the actual narrative, just like what are the impressions that I had as a kid? Sure. Well, so I can sort of speak generally. I think that mm-hmm. transnational adoption like plays really well into ideas of like American exceptionalism and mm-hmm. a sort of like rescuing of children from mm. poor countries where they are imagined to have pretty dismal life expectations. Right. I think there's also a sort of market logic to it. Domestic adoption has a lot more hoops for adoptive parents to jump through. And birth parents have a lot more control over who adopts their kid. They can negotiate for some sort of open adoption, potentially. Whereas birth mothers and first mothers in the global South, generally speaking, don't have that kind of power to negotiate with Mm -hmm. Western white parents. To speak more personally, I'm adopted from China. I was adopted in 1994, which was kind of close to the beginning of the sort of main wave of U.S. Chinese adoptions. And sort of the big narrative around adoption from China had to do with the one-child policy. This is a narrative I very much remember from my childhood, yeah. Yeah, so the one-child policy was passed in late 1970s to sort of prevent population growth from overwhelming welfare systems and the state planned economy in China. And it was a policy that for the most part limited families to having one child. Of course, like in many policies, it was unevenly enforced. I was about to say, I bet I bet wealth really played a significant role in how heavily that was enforced, huh? Yes, absolutely. There was also, you know, sort of the human rights abuses that you imagine with like sort of population control, forced sterilizations, taking children away from parents who already had a first child. The other narrative I really remember from the time was that, you know, because of the way that a lot of like family inheritance worked, like a lot of families were like, if we can only have one child, we need a son Mm. because we need somebody who is going to like stick around and continue to, you know, run the business or work on the farm. And so my sense was that there were a lot more girls getting adopted out. Yes, most of the children who were adopted out were girls. And while there is some truth to this sort of like cultural preference for boys, K.N. Johnson wrote this book called China's Hidden Children, which really sort of complicates that narrative where she talks to a lot of parents in China who would have really liked to have kept their girls, but they were very afraid. And some of them went to very extreme lengths to try and like hide and protect their second or third daughters. But absolutely, that is the narrative that like circulated in the U.S., in the U.K. And I think it, again, made adopting from China seem like this very like ethical, easy mm-hmm. choice. Basically mm-hmm. like f- a feminist act. Yeah. Save the save the girls. Yeah. I think it was Gayatri Chakravorty Spivak who, who coined that phrase that that there's a particular sort of 
incarnation of colonialism that takes the shape of white women saving brown women from brown men. Like that's her, that's her phrasing, which is that sort of colonial imperial enactment on the part of white women of this kind of like, we will come and save you because we have feminism here and you don't, which becomes a sort of like pseudo-feminist justification for, you know, ongoing acts of imperialism. Mm -hmm. So you were part of this sort of 1990s moment. Did you experience as a child this like shift from the the as if model to the the new approach? I think my experience was very grounded in the more contemporary approach to adoption. My parents belonged to this organization called Families with Children from China, which was for adoptive parents and their children. And we would celebrate Chinese New Year. I took like Chinese folk dancing lessons. I also tried to learn Mandarin multiple times throughout my childhood. It's a little success, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> the use of the word tried there. <laughs> but I guess what I would say is that I think that there was a sort of like fairly superficial encouragement to like engage with China as the sort of beautiful ancient culture. Mm. But there wasn't necessarily anything about say racial consciousness or like what it means to be Asian American or building relationships with Chinese American immigrant communities. Very like multicultural food festival version of politics. Because I think diving deeper into some of these like global inequities really challenges this kind of transcendent love narrative of adoption where it was wholly good that we adopted you. Your life is absolutely better here than it could have been anywhere else. And I think sort of understandably reckoning with that is very painful for both adoptees and adoptive parents. So Nia, this history of transnational adoption that you've talked us through, that brings us to critical adoption studies as a field. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit about, you know, the incorporation of social justice movements and how that's maybe shifted the narrative and impacted not only the way that the field uh, works, but maybe also the way that we think about transnational adoption, like socially and culturally outside of academia? So I'd say one of the main interventions of critical adoption studies is to try and include birth mothers. Mm -hmm. The field has historically, especially in adoption studies, privileged adoptive parents, which makes sense. They were the adults who had the power. And as adoptees grow up, they can also participate. But it's very difficult to bring birth mothers into the conversations, especially if they're not English speaking and not even identifiable necessarily. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this also speaks to putting adoption in a global context, mm -hmm. trying to decenter the U.S. adoptive family, uh, which is typically imagined as this white middle-class family with white parents and BIPOC children, often from a different country. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'd say like the central complexity, I think that adoption, critical adoption studies is trying to grapple with is that adoptive families can be loving and in some ways subversive of bionormative narratives of family, mm -hmm. but they're also created through structural violence and traumatic separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that recognition that transnational adoption is sort of always already entangled in the violences of imperialism and globalization and white supremacy and late capitalism is a really hard thing for people to grapple with in the same way that you, you know, that, that any recognition that your efforts to be a good person 
are always still going to butt up against the systems in which you are irreconcilably entangled. You know, people like we we really particularly I think in a like western understanding of autonomy and self-determination like we really want to be able to just like make good choices our way out of complicity to be like mm-hmm. yeah but but we're good and it's like okay yeah like you might be really really working towards harm reduction but you can't good intentions your way out of globalization you just you just can't it's just the reality yeah. of the the world and it's i think better in many ways to be willing to live in that complexity than to always be trying to find some like silver bullet that will fix everything. Mm. Yes, I would absolutely agree. And I, I think that there's a sort of conflation of, well, your life is great, right? You have all of these mm. access to resources. You have a lot of freedoms. Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't have had that otherwise, but really there's no nobody's harmed by this. And I think Mm. it's really important to separate outcome from was what happened fair and just and right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When we look at the folks in critical adoption studies who are moving in more of that social justice or activist direction, like what is the activism oriented towards? What are people in the field sort of working to change? I mean, there are a variety of uh, perspectives, as one can imagine. I think some people are interested in sort of reforming adoption, fostering surrogacy. Some people think it is just inherently unethical, basically under capitalism and white supremacy for any of these sorts of kinship structures to exist as they do. And then there are also some, I think, uh, interesting projects trying to think about, like, do adoptive children have a right to know their birth parents? Like, do Mm. parents have a right to parent children? And it's really complex because sometimes these parties have honestly conflicting interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I know that in the next next segment, we'll talk specifically about Harry Potter. But one thing that we haven't really touched on yet is the way in which all of these politics around adoption, whether it's domestic or transnational, how we see those represented in popular culture, right? So do you want to talk a little bit about like maybe the literary tradition of adoption? Yeah, sure. So I, I want to draw a little bit on Marianne Novi's reading adoption. And in this book, she's thinking about how adoption plots often move towards an end that defines what true family is for the central Mm. adoptee character. And she talks about how in older literary traditions, like Oedipus Rex or Winter's Tale, the real family is the biological family. The the adoptive family turns out to be this fiction. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Oedipus Rex, it's like a quite tragic fiction. Mm, Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but you're right. Like a lot of these like classical texts are like, you will inevitably refind your quote unquote real family and the adoptive family will have turned out to be like essentially a sort of long lie you were told. I mean, the character in A Winter's Tale, her name is Perdita. Like she's lost. Her name means lost child. And then the resolution. Sorry sorry for folks who haven't read the 500-year-old play. Then she's found. Okay. Yeah, that checks out. 
Yeah, and then Novi also looks at novels like Oliver Twist and Green Gables and The Bean Trees as stories that really confirm adoptive parenthood. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so she kind of lays out how there's sort of three categories of stories. There's the tragic adoption where you then have to go and like look for your birth parents and it ends poorly. And then there's the sort of like happy reunification. And then there's the happy adoption. And her book is really about like trying to pull those apart because she feels as an adoptee that those are not really representative of like how she experiences adoption. Mm, That the complexities of real life, not well mapped into literary. I hate the word theme, but literary themes, tropes, 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 tropes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she's also able to sort of pull out some of the nuances of these stories that don't necessarily fall into these three categories as well. I immediately have a powerful desire to discuss the Anne-Marie MacDonald novel Fall on Your Knees, Mm. but that's not what we're here to talk about. So maybe... funny because I really want to talk about Annie. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's a real shame. It's a real shame, everybody. But I'm going to have to insist we talk about Harry Potter. Yes, let's do it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Like a parliament of Shrigaday scooping up field mice for breakfast, let's scour this book series in owls. Ooh. Hey, Marcel, what the heck does Shrigaday mean? Well, I tried to find another word for owls for this opening line, and so I had to look up like what the genus is. <laughs> anyway, I found that there are two families of owls. Uh-huh. There's true owl, and then and then there's false owl, owl <laughs> which seems wrong. <laughs> Anyway, so the true owl is the Strigaday. Okay, Nia, in your notes, as we were prepping for this episode, you had identified a number of different areas in the Harry Potter series that we could unpack through a critical adoption studies framework. So I would love it if you took the lead and told us where we're going to start. Okay, so... First, I want to look at Harry as our central orphan protagonist and think about how he comes into true family. Mm -hmm. And then I want to talk about Voldemort's relationship to family as a foil to Harry. Oh, man, yes. Mm -hmm. From there, we can think about how both Harry and Voldemort's stories show how institutions fail children and families. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Dang, if that's not fair. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I want to think a little bit about, like, why adoption isn't an option narratively for either Harry Mm. or Voldemort. Mm. Okay. All right. And then to wrap up, I want to just talk briefly about the work of Lumos, which is an NGO co-founded by J.K. Rowling and its relation to Harry Potter's ideology of family. Wow. I have never heard of Lumos. And I this roadmap? 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm really into it. Okay, so let's let's start with Harry. Here's what we've got, like classic British orphan story of like mm. you had good parents who loved you and then they died and now you are with bad people who hate you. That is like Well, they died tragically, tragically. too. Yep. They died yeah. of fault not their They own. were very in love. I mean, they died trying to protect you. They mm-hmm. wanted you. They like all of this sort of ideal model of like what the family should look like right like they're Mm -hmm. they're perfect they are perfect parents you know Mm -hmm. we talked about this with lily like the most perfect thing a mother can do is die for her child and then you know obviously rather than going to like another family that will like also do their best it's like you've got perfect birth family or you've got nightmare abuse of parents parent figures who lock you you know, in an attic, often, in mm. this case, under the staircase. The Little Princess was one of my favorite books as a kid. And it's very much this, like, you have a a wonderful, rich father who loves you and will save you at some point. But in the meanwhile, you live in mm. an attic with no dolls. Yes, absolutely. And I think that the orphan sort of narrative does a lot of work in in creating protagonists who are very independent Mm. seem to be like individuals who sort of through their suffering and maybe personal acts of kindness uh, Mm -hmm. then deserve the status quo uh, wealth and class privilege that they come into at the end Mm -hmm. and that was always supposed to be theirs based on their birth yeah right yeah that like like not only do you have real birth parents who loved you dearly but surprise they also had a ton of money I'm just thinking how radically different the story of Merope would be if we thought about, like, the fact that she wanted her child, you know? Because of the fact that she she dies at, just after giving birth, we, our narrative about, like, Merope and Tom Riddle Jr. or whatever is not one of, like, well, she she wanted him, you know? Isn't there a whole thing about like well Merope didn't want him enough like Lily like she died of sadness and that's not a thing you do if you're a good mom if you're a good mom you can only die of wizard yeah I think that's something that like that's some that's some it's a it's a realization that Harry comes to and that's when Dumbledore is like oh are you feeling sorry for Voldemort he's like no (laughs) no anyway it's interesting in the context of sort of the muggle versus wizarding to think about that like kids who are raised in one culture in the other, right? So, like, Harry's being raised by the Dursleys means, like, they do not tell him that wizards exist. Like, they cut Mm -hmm. him off from every aspect of who his parents were, what the wizarding world is, what, you know, the possibility that he might also have magic. Is there, like, a... Is there, like, a pained adoption metaphor at work in that? Well, I guess because the sort of racial ethnic metaphor of muggles and wizarding folk is pretty messy, it's it's a bit difficult to parse. I think you could do it two ways. Like on one hand, there's like, especially around indigenous children, this like historical separation of children from their tribes, from their families, and the really painful sort of cultural genocide that that basically enacts. And so 
you could read the Dursleys as kind of enacting something similar, isolating Harry from the magic world, from his his like true history. They lie to him and tell him that his parents yeah. died in a car crash. On the other hand, I also feel like wizards kind of are pretty powerful and mm-hmm. they certainly have more power than muggles in a lot of ways. Like in the adoption metaphor, the Dursleys are like the white middle class family who has adopted this child who is like different and stigmatized. But then within the larger metaphor of the series, muggles are very clearly meant to be the like sort of minoritized, sub the racialized, I mean, unclear. But that is a really good example of the way that that sort of analogy of muggles to wizards flip flops through the series. Mm. I think muggles are boring, muggles are bigoted. The Wizarding World has, for Harry, wealth. The Wizarding World has a sort of like neoliberal multiculturalism where like muggles, we don't want to like harm them. They are kind of like cute sometimes, but also they're totally separate from us. Mm -hmm. And I think when you think about Harry's actual parentage, Lily was a muggle born. Pretty unclear. I mean, we know that her relationship with Petunia deteriorated. But her relationship with her her parents, her other family, her friends, all of that it just doesn't exist in the book. Mm-hmm. And so I think you could also read this in some ways as like the series saying, well, muggle culture is just inferior. Muggle relations don't give you anything of value in and of itself. Mm. And for you to come into your true potential, you have to go to the, the magic world where you can practice magic and inherit mm-hmm. loads of gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, classic. So... Back to your roadmap, Nia. Where are we? So we've talked a bit about culture. I think also the importance of blood really comes through in in Harry's oh. story. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like Lily's sacrifice is like actually manifested in his blood, and he has to stay with the Dursleys, even though they are terrible to him because of this blood protection. And then, if you look in the series about the alternatives that exist to the Dursleys, you have Hogwarts, mm-hmm. which is an institution. And so I don't think that the, the books really consider that as an adequate replacement for family. I mean, it, it provides shelter and food and education and pure friendships. Mm. And it is sort of like the peak of wizarding culture. You are learning how to be yeah. a wizard there. But I think the way that Hogwarts functions is sort of along what we were talking about with the little princess. This is the place where you mm. prove yourself like through your acts of bravery and and you're recognized as like part of this long lineage of exceptional white men. I think too, like we see these snippets of Voldemort trying to stay at Hogwarts throughout the summer and being denied, right? So whatever's happening in the background of the of of the story, like by no means are children allowed to live there permanently? Yeah, it is Correct. not. It is yeah. it is an educational institution. Even that that sort of limitation of Hogwarts as a replacement of family comes through in the way that like Harry loves being there, but being one of the kids who stays there through Christmas is like kind of a bummer. Because like even though it is great to like mm-hmm. like yeah. it's kind of a, an equalizer for him. Like it gives him a place where he can prove himself and like become you know, important and and part of a community and like have friendships and all of these, you know, and stable adult figures. Just one McGonagall, just one mm, Hagrid. Yeah. Yeah. Like (laughs) stable-ish, adult-ish figures-ish. But there is still this sense that like, well, it doesn't replace having a family because like you need somewhere to go at Christmas and during Mm -hmm. the summers and he has to go back to the Dursleys. 
And somebody needs to give him permission to go to Hogsmeade. So we also get that like that whole that whole third book where where McGonagall's like, absolutely not. I cannot give you permission. I am not your guardian. Right. But then we do have yeah. Sirius coming in as this yeah. like potential family member. But he can't really be a father because he's kind of reckless. He treats Harry as James. He's got <laughs> so much yeah. trauma. <laughs> Yeah. So much unmanaged trauma. There is a lot of cultural suspicion around a single man adopting a child. Mm. Like, that is not Hmm. a model we see for the most part. It is not treated as, you know, for all of these, like, very sort of gender essentialized reasons of, like, well, women are naturally caring Men obviously don't have capacity for nurture, so what are they going to do with that child? Like, part of what makes Sirius not an appropriate family replacement is that he can't, like, the Weasleys are a family because they're, like, a heterosexual, reproductive, biologically related family. But, like, Sirius can't be. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think so. I also think that there's a kind of, like, queer coding to the Marauders as a family a found family. And I mean, you talked about it in the Order of the Phoenix movie, how Sirius is just really into Harry. Like, uh, I think there's a sort of subtext to that yeah. just not being appropriate. A, a possibly sinister <laughs> subtext to the way that that is framed. And Sirius's inappropriateness as a guardian is framed, which is a shame because those two would have had a really cute family together. They would have. Yeah. I want to I want to add to the way that like we often see Sirius and Molly butting heads about appropriate ways to raise Harry and one of you very smart humans was talking about how the Weasley family is like a heterosexual reproductive family and Molly moms the hell out of that family like all we see her do is stereotypical mom stuff. And so the idea of Harry being Sirius's godson and him being a potential guardian and the tension that exists between those two parent figures is really, it's like thickly coated with politics. And I don't know what to say about it other than there's a lot to unpack. Okay. Just speaking, because we are on, on the topic now of the Weasleys who are like obviously sort of ultimately when it comes to finding a family, they're like the family that Harry finds. But Mia, you've got you've got a point here in the notes that I was like, holy shit, I absolutely didn't think of that. Which is that the series basically needs to take like the slightly queer notion of chosen family and be like, don't worry about it. We made it legitimate through marriage and heterosexual reproduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us your thinking. So I guess where I see Harry Potter thinking about family generally is that it's trying to situate itself somewhere between family is about choice and behavior and family is about blood. Because blood isn't enough. If you're crappy to somebody, yeah. that's not your end goal family. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's very important for your family to be people who share your culture, your magic culture, and to mm. do that culture appropriately, which means that they are tolerant. They're not supremacists. Mm-hmm. And what cements sort of 
relationships that have grown organically through actions of care and through shared culture is intermarriage and children and replacing these bad blood relations with yeah. good blood yeah. relations. Yeah, so it's like the Weasleys are the good wizarding family. They're a representation of what is good about the wizarding world. And thus, Harry and Hermione, who do not have pre-existing you know, biological connections into the wizarding world, Hermione, because she's, she's muggle-born, and Harry, because he is orphaned, just need to marry into the Weasley family. <laughs> And then Harry and Hermione get to be uh, in-laws. They get to be siblings-in-law. How nice. Yeah. So we do, you know, for, for all of that complexity, ultimately have a vision of Harry getting a family by the end of the series. Voldemort fares less well. A little, a little, yes. a little less well. And I feel like part of it is that that whole thing where, like, he is orphaned. He is raised in an institution, not in a household mm -hmm. and then he's not from what i can tell like he's not sort of adopted by anyone like does he have to go back to the orphanage during the summers he does yeah yes. yeah so yeah. he just bounces from institution to institution which is a, a different kind of experience for sure yes i think that what's going on with Voldemort is both that like his nurturing situation has been terrible he's in Hogwarts and in this orphanage. But also there's this kind of like tracing back to blood that there's something just inherently mm -hmm. antisocial and antifamilial about being descended from Slytherin, being uh, conceived through a non-consensual relationship between Merope and Tom Riddle Sr. And that sort of this dysfunctionality, he then reproduces himself by having this child with Bellatrix, who is also orphaned and also raised by a non-parental figure who doesn't like her and just wants her for the money. Yeah. So we get, you know, sort of the other version of the orphan story, like, you know, raised by the, the mean family who, the sort of Cinderella thing, like raised by the mean family who treats you like garbage or raised in truly the bleakest imaginable orphanage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. what that's what we get from a, a young Tom Riddle of like, we're not given a ton to work with beyond Harry's description of Dumbledore's memories and then like little anecdotes. Mm -hmm. So the orphanage is bad. And he also grows up not knowing he's a wizard. That's like another another characteristic of the orphanage. Why does Dumbledore keep letting these kids be raised in these awful contexts <laughs> where nobody tells them they're wizards? How I make sense of that is that like Dumbledore almost functions as like an embodiment of the institution. Mm -hmm. He's not like a real person who can adopt somebody. He's he is the voice of the institution. That is a really good framing. Like he acts as an extension of Hogwarts and so he can come to you once you are accepted into Hogwarts, but before that, you have no access to Dumbledore. Yeah. So via Voldemort's unhappy childhood and via sort of, you know, its contrast to Harry's at least sort of ultimately happy connection with the Weasleys, mm -hmm. we've got a pretty clear, like, you can't be raised by an institution. Like, yes. that's not yes. going to do it. You're going to need a family. Yeah, I think that even in some ways, like perhaps Harry Potter is more radical on this than it intends to be like the criminal justice system that like imprisons Sirius and traumatizes yeah. him and separates him from Harry is ruining a potential loving relationship. Yeah. 
I also think that like Hogwarts as an institution is pretty unsafe for children. <laughs> Seems to be. It does. It does seem to be. Yeah. <laughs> The housing system seems to encourage at least some children to be indoctrinated into, like, wizarding supremacy. Yeah, that's a flaw in the sort of pedagogical design of the school, for sure. <laughs> but, then for the, sure. but then that other house, Gryffindor, is also, like, in order to, like, belong here, you need to do increasingly dangerous things. To basically, basically training, training kids for a wizarding military, <laughs> essentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely not uh, the nurturing uh, parental guidance that children need. No, no. And I think we see this explicitly in book five when Umbridge comes in and and Hogwarts, like, which was operating under sort of Dumbledore's benevolent autonomous state, becomes just an extension of the Mm -hmm. state and one that is, like, politically against what Harry is standing for in that moment. So let's talk about why... When we know adoption's like a thing and was a thing in the 90s, was an escalating thing in the 90s, why are neither Harry nor Voldemort like adoptable or like why that's not even presented as a narrative possibility? It doesn't seem imaginable in the logic of the books. So I think for the Dursleys, it's coming from just not caring about him enough. They could adopt him, but they don't. They're neglectful. And then because he has this blood connection with them that he needs to preserve, Mm -hmm. logistically, it would be difficult for him to live with somebody else and therefore be adopted by somebody else. And then I think we can also think about this on a more like symbolic level where Lily is the perfect Mm -hmm. mother and you can't have two mothers. So for her sacrifice to still carry forth, he has to remain an orphan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really... You know, and he's also gotta gotta sort of do the the chosen one narrative thing, mm-hmm. and it's like harder to yeah. be a like brave chosen one battling your way to the metaphorical grail if you've got like stable parental units, yeah, <laughs> who will really be like, please don't go fight a wizard, don't you're a yeah. child, <laughs> as Molly keeps trying to do. She tries. So then what about Voldemort? Is he not adoptable because there's just something bad about him? Is that the subtext? Is that the subtext? (laughs) That's kind of what I think. I mean, like, he doesn't have any sort of blood protection. I think in both of these cases, Dumbledore was like, yeah, I can't do love. I'm just going to, like, supervise you from afar, which, again, going back to the institution, not working out for either of them, Mm -hmm. like, that doesn't help Voldemort. And and Harry sort of talks about the pain of that in The Cursed Child Mm -hmm. as well. And I think that Dumbledore's just like, I don't know, this kid, he's too, like, creepy and weird and, like, it would be unsafe to subject a good family to raising him, which is another sort of, like, problematic trope of, like, the horror orphan. Yeah, that that narrative of, like, well, you don't want to subject a good family to a child that is fill-in-the-blank with, like, whatever hateful stereotype of adoption yeah Yeah. but that does it's like the orphan can be a hero or a monster like that sort of stream of like it can't be either he's the chosen one who's just waiting to find out about his secret heritage and all the money waiting for him or he's like a sinister child who would you know endanger a family that adopted him like Mm -hmm. those are sort of these these two extremes of the same weird cultural narrative around orphans. Hmm. Yeah. 
And I think you see that in real life as like hesitancy to adopt children who have trauma, who have yeah. continuing relations with family members who are unacceptable mm-hmm. in some way to a sort of like yeah. middle class properness. Or kids who are still connected to that like part of what makes Voldemort and Harry quote unquote unadoptable in the logic of the text is that they are irrevocably connected to the wizarding world. So, like, they can't be yeah. fully wrested out of that context by whatever, you know, a muggle adoptive family, which, yeah. I mean, this book loves biological essentialism. The series loves <laughs> biological essentialism, and mm-hmm. it loves ultimately sort of reinforcing a, like, quite conservative understanding of what counts as family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nia, you had brought up Lumos. Do you want to talk uh, just a little bit about what Lumos is and... Yeah, like how that's connected to what these books have to say about adoption? Yeah, sure. Uh, So in 2005, J.K. Rowling and Baroness Emma Nicholson, who is also a known turf. We know from The Sound of Music you cannot trust a Baroness. Never. Yes. (laughs) They co-founded an NGO called Lumos and... Lumos works to prevent family separation in about a dozen different countries. Okay. And I just want to say, I don't really know how involved J.K. Rowling is in any of Lumos's operations, and I don't know how effective Lumos's work is. I will note that they talk about like wanting to educate themselves about transphobia on their website, so that at least is cool, <laughs> potentially. Mm. But So they're specifically working to get children out of institutions and back with their families, and they're doing this through uh, policy work and also by shifting funding for orphanages to funding for sort of community-based care. Gotcha. And so something I I sort of think is interesting about this is that those goals are are fairly consistent with critical adoption studies about economic and political inequities uh, that produce adoption, especially transnational adoption. And you can sort of Mm -hmm see the anti-institutionality of Harry Potter sort of like resonating with with this mission. Mm -hmm. But then I also think that in protecting families of origin, birth families, first families, it can partner in a really weird way with uh, sort of a bionormative understanding of family that views the capacity for biological motherhood as this sort of essential woman. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it does all sort of, we can't talk about adoption without thinking about kind of the, the the treatment of the mother as a figure and this sort of like you know one of those really turfy through lines is this kind of like the magic of your womb yeah so i i guess what i sort of want to leave people with is that i think adoption sort of poses these ethical questions that don't fall easily into sort of like a progressive stance and a conservative stance. Mm-hmm. As I've said before, I think like children, parents, adoptive parents, they they often have conflicting interests and rhetoric, especially around what would be in the best interest of children, is so easily weaponized for many different arguments about kinship and bodily autonomy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not even saying that Lumos's work is bad necessarily. I, I just think it's important to consider why TERFs might champion an effort to end family separation and if you believe that, generally speaking, family separation should be ended, which I do, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to promote that stance from a place that isn't naturalizing biological reproduction mm-hmm. or cultural essentialism. Yeah. 
or gender or the nuclear family. It's a really tricky thing to be like, here is here is a sort of stance or a movement that the substantive changes are a thing that I agree with, but the reason why some people are moving towards it are quite insidious. Mm -hmm. And it is, yeah. like, often around activist movements, difficult to navigate. I think about this in the context of, like, BC environmentalism, mm -hmm. that, like, there's a huge environmentalist movement in British Columbia that is, like, working against deforestation. And those deforestation movements are, like, predominantly white, do not collaborate with the Indigenous nations whose land they are, quote unquote, protecting. Don't acknowledge the actual, like, right to make decisions about how that land is used. So it becomes a, like, yeah, I also would like the trees probably to not be cut down, but I don't agree with the way you're going about it and the way that you are talking about nature seems profoundly colonial. And it's just, you know, it's mm. it's complex to detangle particularly these issues that don't have an obvious, here's the progressive stance and let's just all get on board with it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nia, for joining us and talking us through these incredibly complex issues. It was awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for your roadmap. We kind of followed it. I, I think we did a really good job. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, come hang out with us at ohwitchplease on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of exclusive perks, including a sneak peek as in already available right now, this very second of our new podcast. Been feeling anxious about what's going to happen when we're done with Harry Potter? <laughs> no need. Patreon has all your answers. Nia, if people want to learn more about your work, more from you, where can they find you? My friends Marika and Kira and I made this immersive audio choreography called Caress, where listeners follow a series of movement prompts uh, woven into stories about caregiving and Asian femininity. So if you'd like to try that out, you can find the link to the audio file on our Instagram, which is caress.audio. That's awesome. So good. Which Please is, surprise, surprise, a Witch Please production, and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and soon the rest of our podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. And there are a bunch of other things you can get at ohwitchplease.ca, like our newsletter and our transcripts and our merch and our reading lists. It's a good website. Websites are cool. Go look at it. <laughs> Speaking of websites are cool, thanks to the team who helps make it. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please team, including our digital projects coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our sound engineer, Eric Magnus, and our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, aka Coach, but 
<laughs> Special thanks this week to our guest producer, AJ Yoramas, who is filling in for Coach while she is on vacation. Mm -hmm. And we have been on our best behavior. Sorry, AJ, this was our best behavior. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear Marcel singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. Sorry, no snapping on the mic, Hannah. Thanks this week to Off the Cali and Neb Fab. We'll be back next episode to append these appendices. But until then, later, witches. <laughs>